You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome back to Die Hard on a Blank, the podcast where we explore the influence of Die Hard on action cinema, one action movie at a time. I'm Liam Billingham. I'm Philip Gawthorne. Phil. Yes, sir. I'm going to attempt something that I haven't done in a long time in honor of the movie that we're talking about today. Mouth trumpet James Bond theme. Pretty, pretty good. Pretty good, yeah, right? Pretty, what film are we talking pretty about? Pretty passable. We Thank are you. we are talking about License to Kill. It's Die Hard in a Bond movie. Yeah, it kinda. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's it's a fascinating intersection of two completely different and contrasting approaches to action. You know, fascinating movie. I, I, I think it is. Yeah, it, it it is a. I cannot wait to get into this. I'm yeah. I'm really excited. Should I should I give us some fast facts, some Please top do. line facts Please about do. License to Kill? License to Kill was released in the U.S. by MGM United Artists. United Artists. Every time I see the United Artists logo, I'm. I'm in for a good time. Here. Yeah, yeah. Things are good. Yeah, yeah. All is right with the world when you it see that. It feels good. Logo. Yeah, you're especially children of our, yeah, men yeah. our age are like mm-hmm, Tri Star mm-hmm. the same with that. And then like, you see the eye moving yeah, and you yeah. see the the, tu- the tuxedoed man. Yeah. You're like, mm-hmm, you know you're in for a good this time. This is the best hungover Saturday mm-hmm. of my life. Mm-hmm. It was released by MGM UA on four, the 14th of July, 1989. I was almost, I was six years old. Mm-hmm. Just as a fact. It was released earlier in the UK. So do you know when it was released in the UK? Was it like a um, lot earlier? There was like a ro- they usually have a royal premiere, which is a big, uh, big to-do. Uh, I believe that was on the 13th of June, and then it was released um, shortly after that. So I think the Bond movies typically come out in the UK slightly ahead of the US. Slightly ahead of the US. It was directed by John Glenn, who I have a lot of time for in Me my too. life as a Me filmmaker. Too. And produced by Albert R. Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson. It stars Robert Davi, Carrie Lowell, and in the role of James Bond, the great 
Timothy Dalton. Thank you for saying that because I'm a big Dalton defender, and I'm I'm here to like he, Dalton gets a lot of stick, but I think uh, the Bond fans there's a lot of Bond fans, and we'll get into this, but that really, especially in the UK, that are big fans. That was Dalton ringing in just to say thanks. <laughs> they're, wait, so sorry, they're they're a big Dalton. So people like Dalton in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I th- my my opinion is that he is well respected and well regarded. But we we we'll talk. We can talk about that more. But I'm a Dalton defender for sure. So this feels like a good time to talk about James Bond culturally from okay. the UK. Let's jump around a little bit. UK right. US perspective. Uh, first of all, I need to ask the following couple of questions. First one: What's your favorite James Bond movie? You know what? Might be it. Wow! I actually, I was thinking about this today, and although now let me just say this: let me say it's my favorite, not necessarily what is the, the best. Uh, okay, like so we're, we're putting difference. that aside. This is my subjective. I truly love the two Dalton films probably more than than any of the other films. That's not to say that I don't love all the other films. There's many of them that I love, but I think it's just because of the era mm-hmm. they came out and because. It was just kind of tied to my youth and me falling in love with cinema and they were on constantly, especially, well, I, I say that Living Daylights was on constantly. constantly. here too, yep, yep. Is that right? Yeah, it was on TV a lot, yep. Okay, it felt like it was never off the air and uh-huh. it, it was really kind of, it was really prevalent in our, uh, you know, in so our So did culture. you grow up in a, like a Bond, You, I assume you grew up in a Bond-loving household. Actually, no. Interesting. Um, I think my, my I don't think, my, my dad was fairly indifferent to Bond and my mom, I think, kind of had, who was, you know, a bit of a, 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 you know, feminist, was not thrilled with the chauvinism of Bond. What, what are you talking about? Um, it's all so, so kosher. I actually, it, I, it was something I sort of discovered right. independently. It wasn't like it was like my dad showing me the Conneries or anything mm. like that. It was just something that, you know, it was around. I And just, I just really do love The Living Daylights. And I've been watching it. Again. I think it's one of the best theme songs. But I find what's interesting about The Living Daylights, and we're talking about License to Kill, but we, we're contextualizing no, it's, it with it's the cool. previous yeah. one. It's also, we're talking about James you know. Bond. Everything is on the table. Living Daylights does this extraordinary thing where it's a two-hour, ten-minute movie that folds space-time because it's also a ten-hour miniseries that you have to watch in, like, five (laughs) different sessions because it's just, like, the longest movie of all time. Really? Wow. It's just because it covers so much ground. You're watching it and, you know, it's like, hang on a minute. Now, first of all, we're dealing with a defection in, in the former Czechoslovakia. Now we're in Afghanistan now, like and now he's riding a horse and and it's just like it, it there's it covers so much ground but one of the best theme tunes of all time um in my opinion the aha john like it's it's a pop song that has the elegance of john barry behind it so it has this real it's just a nifty my man you, know, you are a scholar of of these of this stuff I did, it's well, incredible I, look, I, no it's great it's great i bond I, i'm particularly excited about today because Bond is so important to British culture. Sure. And it's something that I think we put, everyone has an opinion on, we put a lot of respect on it. That's why, like... Um, it is one of your greatest cultural exports. I, I think, think it's it, uh, pretty I, I hard to it deny. Is, other than the Beatles. Oh, yeah, those guys. Right? Radiohead. You may have heard of them. Look, you could... You could <laughs> there's plenty... Let's just list our plenty. favorite British things. <laughs> um, 
I think Bush. I, I think there's an argument. Wow, that was that was that was a deep cut. I was not expecting that. <laughs> I love that. Bush. Yeah, sure. That's right. Um, Grand L. Bush, <laughs> the star of this movie, who I like to call the Bush. I don't think he's British, though. I will say that I don't uh, think Grand L. Bush is British in the same way that Bush no. the band is British. But we're we're big we're big fans of the Bush. We love him. We love in, the guy. <laughs> he's the best. He's in every movie we've talked about yeah. so far. So uh, yeah, but Bond is uh, probably our greatest pop cultural export that is still running. And I was realizing, I realized this morning. I'm sorry, Tom York would like to have a word, but go ahead. <laughs> well, if you should he, see Phil's I face mean, right look, now. I, I've written, I've, one of my, the films I've done the, the, actually has a whole Radiohead thing about it. I'm going to talk about Radiohead. I, I adore Radiohead. Sure. They're massively important to me. So um, the, it, it's no slight on them, but let's face like the Bond franchise has been running for 60 years to the year. Dr. No was 62. Is there and of any course the books new, precede yeah, that. there's nothing longer running than that in the entire. I, I, I would struggle to think so. So yeah. I think it, I think there's an argument to say that James Bond is, is Britain's greatest current pop cultural export. You know, and it's funny you bring that up because my my relationship to James Bond started very young. I grew up with Bond as like a big part of my childhood. Um, I think my dad once told me that the way he got into James Bond, Ian Fleming's novel specifically, is that JFK, who, you know, my dad, Irish Catholic from Boston, had a lot of time for. JFK once said that his favorite books were Ian Fleming's James Bond novels. And I think that that led my dad to read every Ian Fleming James Bond book he could. So I saw Dr. No at like, and I mean like my dad showed me Dr. No first at maybe eight years old. And it was all Connery all the time in my household. That's like what we watched. I, I think my mother also similarly was like, you know, these movies aren't real life, right? Like this isn't, you know, normal behavior, but like every, we watched every single one. He didn't like Roger Moore. So the Roger Moores are like my least sort of, uh, the ones that, that I have the least exposure to. I've seen all of them, of course, but like I've probably seen Goldfinger 15 times from Russia So you're a big love. Connery guy, right? Big That's Connery guy. Yeah. But if I had to pick a favorite James Bond movie, it's probably Skyfall. Sure, I, I would. I would say that's certainly the argument for the best, right? And that would be in my top five, if not top three. Yeah, I, I think it's. Uh, I, I love Skyfall, and, and what I thought was really he's interesting incredible. About, Daniel Craig is just incredible course, in that movie. We're actually from the same hometown. We were born in the same ah, city in Chester. I knew this is why you're so charming and sort of deadly. You well, have that. <laughs> <laughs> I, won't go, I won't go that far, <laughs> but um, he, it, you know, that adds an extra frisson to it because it's like it's a local. You know, local boy made good. I think I think a lot of people feel very proud of James Bond and the actors that play that. There's, it's almost like they're almost like religious icons in yeah. the UK, where it's like um, transgressive to disrespect them in a weird way. Even though everyone has their opinion, do you like more? Do you like Connery? Which right. did you grow up with? Which movie did you see first? The Roger. I think the first one I ever saw was Man with the Golden Gun. Uh, um, that's, so I was weaned that's a good one. And that's a prime Roger, Roger Moore, Moore era. That's yeah. like right in the, the Which shapes the your interpretation of the character. Totally. Which was the more lighthearted, the more debonair style that Roger Moore went for, which was which Dalton, um, you know, took the baton and did something very different. Very, very different. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. Like, I grew up, I think my, like, entry into Bond is as early as, like, my entry into movies. Like, I don't think I can parse the two. I think that, like, there's no difference. So they've, these movies have been important to me, like, my entire life. I've probably... They're probably the series I've seen... I think I've seen every single Bond movie since Goldfinger 
not Goldfinger, I'm so sorry, since Goldeneye mm-hmm. in the movie theaters, except Die Another Day, mm-hmm. which is the only Bond movie that I sort of was like, well, I don't know about, we're in an ice castle here, what's going on? It's not Die Another, is that Die Another Day? I believe, I believe yeah, yeah, so. Yeah, the, the last Brosnan AKA film. Beyond the Ice, the yeah. uh, original title. <laughs> is that the original title? I want to talk about the titles later. We'll get That's I've fantastic. thing I want to run with. But I think that, uh, they're just yeah. I I think that for me the the more the Bond movies are as like as sort of as big of a part of my life as as any movie at all. Um, and I think they're really great. And I was very excited that you wanted to talk about this movie, which by the way, is an original screenplay mm-hmm. by Michael Wilson, Michael G. Wilson, and Richard Mabom. And they you said they are based on different element. They're so based on different yeah. Ian Fleming novels. I mean, yeah. So. Obviously, some of the a lot of the the earlier Bond films were yeah were direct adaptations of specific books. This one is unusual because it's an original screenplay, but it features uh, a couple of elements that are from Ian Fleming um, stories. One one being the Felix Leiter's mauling um, courtesy of a shark, which is from the book of Live and Let Die, and the Milton Crest character and the Wave Crest boat, which is derived from a, um, a short story called The Hildebrand Rarity. So they kind of combine them. So yeah, but just that they're pretty ethereal to this is this is essentially an original screenplay, which is somewhat unusual in the in the Bond canon, but it does have some small influences from specific Fleming source material. And also, I think we both think that it's definitely influenced by Die Hard. Massively influenced by Die Hard in terms of its visual style, in terms of its tone, and in terms of the composer and uh, two of the two of the actors are. Our boys, FBI agents, uh, Big Johnson and Little Johnson. <laughs> this this Wilson movie is a little bit of a like Bond legacy film because, and we didn't mention this, but John Glenn, before directing several Bond films, edited what I think is a top three James Bond movie, which is On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which sure. I think is just a total action masterpiece some of the best still some of the best action in any any movie I've ever seen in my life and and you can feel that Glenn was a good fit for the job of directing these movies cuz he knew how to edit them yeah it, it, it's interesting how i think with the bond they they kind of keep it in the family mm-hmm. they like consistency they like the lineage you know that they 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 you know it, it's also hence the casting of um Felix Leiter who was the same actor that was in Live and Let Die, um, but was recast from the actor who played Leiter in The Living Daylight. So they kind of- Wait a minute, the guy who plays Felix Leiter in The License to Kill is the same actor that played him in Live and Let Die? Correct. But it's not the same actor that plays him in The Living Daylight. Correct. I did not know. I haven't seen Live and Let Die in maybe a decade. I did not know that. Yeah. So, and I think that was because they were trying to you know, they wanted to speak to the history of it because of what ha- lighter is is usually more of a, a cameo or a brief subplot. Yeah, he usually has one, like he, ten minutes in a movie. In this one, he's pivotal. He's he is the catalytic event for you know that propels the whole movie. And he is played by David Hedison, who I I totally did not remember. I mean, it is interesting because I I've always thought of the License to Kill as the Felix Leiter James Bond movie, mm-hmm. and he certainly integrated. Um, into the later Bond films with Daniel Craig, especially the, the last one, No Time to Die, where he plays a major part yep. and is played so well by... Um, Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright, who's a great choice for Lighter. I like his, you know, this is total tangent, but I like his later career kind of Jim Gordon, Felix Lighter phase that he seems to be going through. It's really interesting. 
I think it would have been interesting. You know, we'll, we'll get into the we'll get into the movie, but just just while we're on the lighter thing, that. Look, I think Hedison has a a charm to him. Um, you know, I, I I you know I think he's he's fine in the part. But could you imagine if that part was played by say like a Scott Glenn or an Ed Harris or a Samuel L. Yeah. Jackson, yeah. someone in that time, nineteen eighty nine, someone that was just had a little more weight to them as an actor because David Hedison was in a film with you know he he when he knew Bond it was with Roger Moore, so he's almost like a Roger Moore. A little anachronistic, yeah. You know, it doesn't quite fit with the serious, hard-edged tone of the rest of this movie. And I think, you you know, it would have been... The actor who plays um, Lighter in... um, in, Life, uh, in Living Daylights, the previous the previous Dalton iteration, John Terry, um, not the former England captain, football player, by the way, uh, it is also... It was pretty darn good actor who was in Full Metal Jacket, was in, as the lieutenant, was great movie. in Zodiac as the editor of the newspaper, has the great scene where he reads the Zodiac letter. So he was a, he was a strong actor. Oh my goodness. So first of all, Zodiac, favorite movie. Of course. Great, incredible that's movie. That's a whole other... Um, that's a whole other <laughs> podcast. Um, um, I don't think I realized that. I need to go back and watch The Living Daylights. You're, you're really selling The Living Daylights on the License to Kill episode here. That's yeah. one thing that's happening. Um yeah, but I think that you just pointed at something that is interesting about this movie, which it's a little bit of a transitionary James Bond film, and I think that is due partially to the influence, which that I think you pointed as there, from Die Hard on this movie. So would you like to tell us a little bit about how this movie feels a little bit like it's following in the tradition of a Die Hard film? Yeah, I mean, if, again, so just... We're talking about Living Daylights just to place this in context. But if you look at the pre... So Dalton comes on board um, with a new take on the character that was more um, in line with the Fleming source material, more rugged, more physical, um, a little bit darker. He saw him as a tarnished man, saw him as more of a human being than a a Superman. Less emphasis on the comedy and more on the physicality um, of the character. So that, that template had been set in Living Daylights, but Living Daylights was still rooted in the Cold War type stories and also the visual aesthetic of Living Daylights. If you compare the opening shots of the two films, the the, the opening of Living Daylights is gray, gloomy, and it also it's the same director mm. and cinematographer. The opening shot of, um, uh, of License to Kill is full on glossy, colorful, it's, it's, it's a, a shot new, of the Florida it's very it bridges Hollywood. in the Florida Keys, it's, yeah, right? Yeah, you're seeing an AWAC um, radar air, uh, radar air, airplane um, flying across the Florida Keys. You've got this gorgeous emerald uh, ocean mm-hmm. and and you know blue skies, and you're right into the movie. You've got the Michael Kamen score, which we're gonna, which which we will talk about. It basically feels much. It feels heavily influenced by the action movies of the time, particularly Die Hard to some extent Lethal Weapon because of the Cayman connection. But basically this is the sort of Joel Silverification, if you like, of the Bond film. The two movies, the, the 60 or at that time, you know, 40 year, whatever whatever it was, the decade-long history. history of Bond crashes and intersects with the what was in vogue for action cinema at that time. So right. that's what makes this such a fascinating collision of sensibilities. And before Living Daylights, the last Bond film was... View to a Kill. View to a Kill, which is the 1982, uh, 1984. 85, I 85, okay. And then before that, it's Never Say Never Again, which is the produced outside of the... Well, there was Octopus. 
Octopussy, Octopussy in 83, I think. And then there was Octopussy For Your Eyes Only. Octopussy is as late only. as 83. For Your Eyes Only, which as is well. a great James Bond movie. Very, mm-hmm. very good. So we're at the end of the Roger Moore era. He's aged out. Yeah. And we're stepping into like a an actionified Hollywood environment. And, and this, this one, movie is made against that. Yes. And this one doubles doubles down on what it sort of started with Dalton's interpretation of the character in the previous film. And but it's now I think that what the Bond film, the Bond franchise is constantly course correcting itself. And I think it's constantly looking because it needs to evolve. It needs to evolve with what is fashionable, what's the zeitgeist of the time, what are the trends of the time. So this is I think a conscious effort to look at like a number of cultural influences and also what was going on in terms of the news. You have Miami Vice, which was of yeah. course a response to you know cocaine cowboy culture in South Florida, you know, Scarface and uh, and all of that. We would this is a story about drug trafficking, the DEA. It's capitalizing like a little bit on it. You so know? that's in the air, you know. Mm-hmm. Um you've got the the Joel Silver, like one of the how I would kind of define that style to some extent with the, all the movies that he produced aesthetically bright but tonally dark there was a real dark if you think about yeah. Lethal weapon yeah you know in particular that i know you you, you know you love, love that movie glossy kind of glamorous yet what the story again about drug trafficking is incredibly dark um you know the main character is considering suicide in in when we meet him which is the scene that what you talked incredible about scene and yeah. it's and what that led to for um you know for for gibson, gibson doing Shakespeare. playing hamlet right yeah. So um, this is, this is where, in my opinion, Die Hard kind of gets its 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 you know its its hands around the Bond franchise because we have obviously there's the stylization. You have the same composer, which was the first time um, anyone other than John Barry had done uh, composed the score. And it's for Michael Kamen. It's Michael Kamen who did Die Hard. Much more of a Hollywood writer yep. than I mean, Barry, John Barry's a little more classic, a little more like let's say not classic but orchestral yes. in his tones. Kamen British, has a frankly, more, it feels yeah, more British. That's fair. Kamen feels American. The Hollywood. fact that this movie almost exclusively takes place in Florida, yes, is so fascinating to me as a as an artifact. Like, and I mean, it makes sense against the you know the the stereotypical drug trade imagery that kind of thing. It's really there's like Bond in Florida exactly. is such an enact. Is How such a many strange... Bond films are set almost? You know, half of it is set in America, and the other half in the cent- Central America, in a fake Central American country, right? Uh, yeah, so that is they're almost always Europe and well, you know maybe somewhat more exotic other. Exotic and I think that when you think rarely, of globe trotting, yeah, you do not America. think of America. America, the, the Bond almost goes out of his way to stay out of America, which by the way I appreciate because when they do it, like in Live and Let Die, when he goes to um, this is Louisiana, right? Or is it not Live and Let Die? Which one? Whenever Bond goes to America, it feels like an event. You know, mm-hmm. like there's almost no New York City in James Bond, mm-hmm. which I think is just so so fascinating. Like. And it feels also, you know, as we've talked a little bit about this, like, era of filmmaking, you know, one thing you pointed out is, Rob, uh, you pointed out is that there's a lot of the DNA of the movie. It's the return of F- Die Hard's FBI agents, Agent Johnson, Special Agent Johnson, Big Robert Johnson Davi, and, Little Johnson, and yeah. Grand L. Bush. And there's something really interesting in the fact that this movie is full of late 70s, early 80 character actors kind of guys. Like the kind of guys that you don't see in movies as much anymore in terms of like, like Robert Davi is an actor, he's a director, he's a jazz singer. Like he had this really interesting, he's by the way, he's totally incredible 
in this movie. He's and an excellent. You Bond feel villain. like you know to, to to bring it back to our Roadhouse episode and our our Die Hard episode. You feel like you're sort of seeing the end of the theater actors transitioning into action movies era. The kind of like classically trained actors, the kind of like multi hyphenate performers that will do like a play. Or be a jazz singer and then be like, oh, I'm just going to go play a villain in a James Bond movie now. Well, why I think this is particularly significant, the Davi thing, I'm glad you brought it up. Because if you think about today, right, where we're at today with Bond villains, in my opinion, the Bond getting a, the, getting a part as a Bond villain is the reward for an international actor who's just won an Oscar. That is the case in the last three iterations, right? You have Ram, Rami Malek, who just won, who'd won an Oscar. Right. You had Christoph Waltz, who just won an Oscar. And you had Javier Bardem. Mm. Just all, uh, all incredible actors, incredible, and, incredible uh, actors, totally great for James Bond. Of films. course, but the point is, like you know, Robert Davi, it was like he's kind of a journeyman character actor, right? Right. He'd been in, you know, he'd done a lot of stuff. He's in Raw Deal with Schwarzenegger, which is a great, great movie. Great movie. He's got yeah. a great part yeah, in that. That's as a like good a movie. Mafia Damn, enforcer. I forgot how good that was. He, he's terrific in that. Then, of course, you know, Die Hard. But if you think about how strange it is to go, for someone who is basically the tenth name on the call sheet in Die Hard, but very, very memorable in his part as the right. FBI agent, to then get a major part as a Bond villain. That is very significant in terms of um, Die Hard's influence. Right. Um, although apparently it was not just Die Hard, it was a, it was a TV movie where he played a similar um, character. I think it was a, a terrorist, like based on a movie of the week type thing. And um, I think Kobe Broccoli's daughter saw him in that or something. So, so it wasn't like they saw him in Die Hard and they were like, he was cast off the back of Die Hard. But it, you're going to look, if you're going to cast someone as a Bond villain, you're going to look at what he just did. And you can't deny that in Die Hard, Robert Davi has an amazing screen presence and a gravitas oh, he's amazing. and a weight to him. And this, I think, is probably his the peak of his career, although he's had a long career. But he's amazing in this. So you love this movie. I do. And I like it. I like it a lot. I will be honest. The first 10 minutes, we'll jump into the plot here. I, the first 10 minutes, I was like, oh, God, I don't know about this movie. But by the end, I was really into it. But I think it, one of the strongest elements of it is Robert Davi. Yeah. I just think he's incredible. And I think something that you're speaking to that's 100% true, by the way. Again, these last three Bond villains have been prestige yeah. and kind of like very different from a Robert Davi. Like, it would be hard to imagine an actor like that getting this part, and yet he's as suave as any of them. He really, you know, Bond villains, from my point of view, has to do a couple things. They have to be deadly. They have to be scary. And he's set up in this movie as, like, a maniacal drug trader who, like, um, who, like, you know, feeds Felix Leiter to a shark. But later, when we get into the sections of the film that are more traditionally Bond, meaning Bond goes to the lair of the villain, or in this case, the town, the like puppet state that this guy controls, mm -hmm. you have to have the scenes where he's wearing a tuxedo and he's suave. And there's, one of my favorite things about this movie is the brief scenes where Davi doesn't suspect Bond of anything, mm. and they're just kind of friends. And he's well, like, hey, amigo. Like, I was like, I'll watch this movie. This sounds really cool. I, I kind of want to save it for when we get into the yeah, villain, right, but I've right. got a lot to, yeah, there's a lot to unpack with, with, that, um, with with Davi's performance and the characterization, but it, I think it's definitely significant that he got such a huge part in such a huge franchise. Let us try now. Let move this thing along. Where I, I could talk about. Should we start a James Bond podcast too? Please <laughs> sign me up. Let's do it. That's Bond on a pod. That's yeah. the name of yeah, our yeah. side. That and yeah, a Radiohead yeah, podcast. Um, 
let's try to reconstruct the plot All right. from memory. So this is going to be kind of challenging because because this is a deceptively it's both simple and complex. It's simple in the sense that the plot is the the catalyst for the plot is that Bond's old friend and CIA agent Felix Leiter is mauled by a shark at the under the supervision and direction of this international drug trafficker. The day um, he gets married, Frank Sanchez. On the day the he movie gets married, opens no with Leiter uh, on the way to his wedding in the Florida Keys. Mm-hmm being called to a last minute raid to capture Robert Davi, who's trying to flee back to South America. And to me, that whole sequence, and we'll talk about it in the action section, but it, it that is pure Joel Silver. The way it's, oh, 100%. The way it's, it's like Commando. And you to know, your there's point multiple about- things happening, we're cross-cutting. Yeah. It's dynamic. It's very dynamic. You know, and to, cold open. And to your point that you made that's really interesting is that like you can look at Bond in, in, in a, from a historical cinematic perspective. Every Bond has to reinvent themselves. Yes. And Living, Living Daylights is, is somewhere in the middle of these things. But Live and Let, I'm sorry, uh, License to Kill opens and it's suddenly like we are making a very different James Bond movie. And I think there's a little bit of Absolutely. whiplash as Absolutely. a viewer. Like I was just I spent the first 10 minutes being and like when I was the last time I'd really watched this movie I was probably 17, right? So watching it now 20 years later I was like what is this? And I and not in a bad way but more in like I'm having whiplash from watching a very very different take on James Bond where like it's very violent. It's Violent in, in the sense that you're not used to with Bonds. Like it's it's a more violent movie. It's a more gritty movie, but it also has some cartoonish elements that and Joel Silver t- brings to the, things. Yeah, and that's the kind of I think that's some of the tension um, of why this film is an anomaly within the Bond canon, an anom- an anomaly in general because you have that the 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 style of the times and what's happening in the times more harder edged gritty, grounded, you know, we'll talk about Davy Moore and, and Fran Sanchez, but he's not trying to get world domination or some elaborate plan like Christopher Walken wants money. and Mutual Kill. Yeah. He is a drug trafficker. Yeah. Simple. And he wants know? power, but he, he doesn't wants, doesn't yeah. want to rule the world, right? Right. It's not it's it's pretty realistic. It's grounded in real life, but at the same time there there is and this the opening sequence kind of speaks to this, there's a sort of light-hearted tone and yet dark subject matter and and the 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 tone it it, it struggles to walk that tightrope i agree you know to some extent but that said i that that's why i love this bond because it is something different it is something kind of refreshing it's a bit of a palate cleanse it's doing it's going for it it's clearing its throat and maybe those first 10 minutes are a throat clearing not in a bad way because after that they capture davi He's put in jail, uh, and he's being held by what's the gentleman, the guy's so Ed, name? So Killifer, played Killifer. by Everett McGill. Yeah, who I is he on Twin Peaks? He is. Yeah, he's on Twin he's Peaks. He's also in Under Siege Two as one of the villains. Which is a great character actor that we'll be talking about. Under a Siege Two, got to talk about Under Siege yep. Two. It's on Eric Bogosian forever. Yeah. So, <laughs> so well said. Thank you very much. So, they capture Davi Killing, Killinger, who's a CIA agent. Uh, DEA. DEA agent yeah, yeah, helps yeah. him escape. Yep. Um. As he escapes, Bond is at Felix Leiter's wedding. He kisses the bride a bunch. Super inappropriate. <laughs> he kisses Felix Leiter's wife. That all just feels That's very always like seventies, Lucy, yeah, Lucy Goose. Like, like it's don't know what's weird. Going on there. And I remember even being fifteen and being like, "Yo, this is weird. Like, this is his best friend's. She's the best man in this yeah, wedding. It's not. It's not okay." Leiter is. Uh, she's murdered. She, you know, she's is she raped as well. It's is implied, it implied that she's raped? It's Oof. implied. See, this is where this that's like a rape and a James. I mean, James Bond movie has some problems when it comes to women and and the films, but that's extreme even for a James Bond movie. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's the first act is extremely rough. Extremely rough. Lighter is fed to sharks. 
he survives. Mm-hmm. And Bond takes it upon himself to avenge Lighter's uh, attempted murder, I yes. guess we should say. Yes. And that involves... Infiltr- well, oh, go ahead. Yeah, well, the first, yeah, it's an we're, interesting. We're breaking this up as we well, go. Yeah, we're, we're, so basically, there's a sort of detective plot, which is un- nah. somewhat unusual in the sense of okay, they realize that he, while well, this sort of uh, ca- detective casually mentions, oh, well, you know, uh, he's probably chainsawed, um, you know, they happen all the time down here, which is true of the drug dealing like culture and, and the, the extreme approach to like punishing yeah. informers and blah, blah, blah. But um, Bond's pal Sharky goes, I know, I know a shark bite when I see it. So the, sh- so the shark becomes the lead so we now think okay well where would you get a shark how would one yeah um, uh how you know that's not an easy thing to do so that becomes the catalyst for his investigation which leads him to um milton crests uh who's that actor so his name's Ant- I, I don't know if i'm pronouncing it correctly it's anthony zerb um zerbe or something or like zerbe. that yeah we should have checked that before it's okay i i i i have a just wonderful a di- actor. digression on this he is absolutely resembles my granddad to a crazy wow. to a crazy degree. So I always had this weird fondness for this character who's pretty nefarious, but um, <laughs> so it's kind of a weird dissonance right. because he looks just like my granddad, but he's like this sort of uh, you know sinister uh, drug de- you know drug trafficking associate. But yeah, so Milton Crest, great character, great actor. Um, of course, he was in probably most well known for his part in on the Council in the Matrix sequels. Thank you. I yeah. could not remember. Who he has he a was. great career. He was in Newman movies, Paul Newman movies, right. and he's he's, he's a, a that time. guy. Yeah, super recognizable. Terrific, terrific character actor. Um, so Milton Crest has a marine research facility, uh, hence his uh, trying to know, feed third the world countries. <laughs> With Very interesting when they integrate actual political issues into James Bond movies, yeah, and it, yeah. it falls flat here. But it's, it's very, very it's interesting. Little, it's 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 interesting because basically, yeah, this facility is a is a ruse for underwater drug smuggling and and so forth. And this Bond figures that out. He 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 gets into Crest's world. He ends up disrupting a shipment and steals five million dollars in the process, and uses that to bankroll his trip to Isthmus. City, which is the puppet state in South America that Robert Davi controls. With the help of Pam Bouvier, CIA asset and ex-army pilot, played, played by, by top five James Bond girl, Carrie Lowell. Yeah. Um. Pour one out for Carrie Lowell. So good. Um, very quickly, I want to pause and, and have a, a brief conversation about Dalton. Because Dalton okay. is sort of the proto-Daniel Craig. Mm-hmm. I think Dan- it feels to me like Daniel Craig looked back and went, I really like what Dalton attempted to do. And I think Dalton is also like a legend in British theater and British culture. You know, like he's, a, he's an important figure, right? But there's two things I want to point out. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. There are two incredible one-liners, one in this movie and one in The Living Daylights. One of my dad's favorite jokes that I feel like Dalton could do the heavy but also was pretty capable of the humor when they gave him the opportunity. And I think everyone views him as kind of a scowly James Bond, mm. and I don't think it's accurate. One is in the scene in The Living Daylights when they're going down the mountain and they cross a border. Oh, yeah, yeah, And he yeah, just yeah. yells, we have nothing to declare. That is a brilliant sequence. Truly, brilliant sequence, but truly one of the funniest lines that James Bond yeah, has Yeah, it's a laugh done. out loud. Like, it's delightful yeah it's a it caps off it's, this amazing in, sequence i remember rewinding that over That's and over Bond again it was, nailed it's you know nailed, what I mean? perfect perfect it's, it's like it button it's incredible action really clever with the cello and then and then the cello it. i forgot about the cello They're like skiing on the cello to get out right. of the situation so it's like it's character it's it, it you know it's original it's new visuals that we've not seen before brilliantly shot edited and then button it with a great one line like to me that's bond it is totally bond i think you're 100 right and the second one and maybe you probably noticed this because you don't miss anything but at a certain point in this movie m Mm. shows up in so good in this florida and he tells bond you have to stop this revenge mission you're supposed you were supposed to be in istanbul 48 hours ago and uh he hands, he says, like, you know, Bond says, I quit, essentially. And he's, okay, you have to give me your gun and your uh, badge or whatever. And he says, it's a farewell to arms, is it? Yes. You know why he says that? No. They're in the Hemingway house. Ah, oh, And yes, it is truly, like, there. it's yes, the historic very Hemingway house. Witty. Yeah. It's very witty, and it flies by. And I only noticed it probably because when you would watch this, when I would watch this movie in the 90s, it would be the VHS. So it would be panned and scanned. But now right. watching it, as he enters the you house, see, yeah, you see the Hemingway says, house yeah, sign. Yeah. And just the fact that he can handle the absurd farewell, he can, he can handle the absurd... Uh, we have nothing to declare, but also, yeah. I guess it's a farewell to it's arms. A very sophisticated joke, and it, it's very sophisticated. But, but it, it doesn't matter if you get it or not because it still right. works. And it's but that's Bond, yeah. right? Like that's this in in thing that they invented with this character, which is like he's he can beat the shit out of anybody. He can fire any gun. He can figure out how to fly a plane in thirty five seconds, and yet he knows his Hemingway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just that's think it's great, very, very. It's smart. a great point, and that scene is really important with them because. It's the title of the movie, right? Like yeah. it's setting up what happened. So basically, yeah, the Bond um, when when the DEA and when and when the British intelligence get wind that Bond is going rogue, essentially to seek revenge for for what happened to Lighter, they yeah they they um, they pull him aside and and tell, like you're not going to do this and and he yeah he says actually f you i am and that is that's unique because bond he goes off reservation yes. so to speak right now that happened like as sort of happened i think later in the craig iterations but at the time that was that was fairly fairly unique this is bond going rogue for private revenge not a mission that's not a sanctioned mission right which is what it usually is and this also speaks to the more anti-authoritarian take that dalton um, brought to the character in the Living Daylights, he literally, one of the first things he says is like, "If M fires me, I'll be, I'll, I'll thank him." He's not so. And Craig again, as to very your very ahead point, of its time, exactly. Craig yeah. lent into that too, right? You know, the idea that he he kind he, of hated his job yeah. and didn't want to be. And I love, kind I of love hated the system. Craig really leans into that. One of the things that there's a little bit less of in this is like Bond drinks a martini, 
But there's a very significant scene. So Bond gets to Isthmus City. He sort of starts to infiltrate Davi's, uh, Davi's character's name, excuse me, is Fran Sanchez. Fran Sanchez yeah. Sort of starts to infiltrate his inner circle. He's doing a deal to bring uh, his drugs to Asia. Um, and there's a scene, There's we get to the sort of what I would call the classic Bond stuff, which is he's kind of undercover. Mm-hmm. He's in a tuxedo. We're in a casino. We're in a casino, and he's playing cards. And there's always that bit where someone goes to the villain, and they're like, there's somebody doing really well at table right. six. And you see them on the monitor, and he's watching them. And like, it's, it's a little like clockwork at this point. We know that they're going to encounter each other. Bond is going to sort of weasel his way in. And then at some point, we're going to realize that there's something else going on here. And it's going to result in a shootout at a factory or a place where either someone's trying to take over the world or in the case of this movie manufacturing drugs right but what's really interesting in this scene is bond tells bond now pam bouvier is acting as his executive assistant because he's created this personality and opened a bank account at the bank yeah of he's imitating he's pretending to be a contract killer looking for work right exactly to ingratiate himself with sanchez and there's a scene where he tells pam bouvier to go get him a martini and she goes and gets it. And then he gets, I think, pulled away to talk to Sanchez. And she's left with the martini. And she drinks it. She kind of looks at it. And I grab the screenshot of this. She's like, whatever. And she downs the whole martini. And I feel like this is a great example of where we are with, quote unquote, Bond girls at this point in the series. Because Bouvier is also anti-authoritarian. She doesn't listen to him. She can do her own thing. And she's really tough. And I think... Carrie Lowell is a top five Bond girl in this movie because she's never the shrink, the sort of like shrieking, like, save me, James. Yeah. In fact, she saves him in right. the Bimini bar shootout. Which sequence. is a great, great sequence. By the, the way, movie. that bar, where's Dalton when you need him? Right? Like from <laughs> yeah. Roadhouse. Yeah, like, yeah, that would be good. <laughs> no, that would be good. Exactly. He needs to go and clean that place. Well, up. maybe that's an influence too. I mean, like, there's a bar fight in this movie. There aren't a lot of bar fights in James Bond movies. But. I just think it's worth pausing. There's two Bond girls in this movie. There mm-hmm. is Pam Bouvier, played mm-hmm. by Carrie Lowell, and Talisa Soto, play, uh, Talisa Soto plays Lupe Lamora. And, like, neither one of them is a shrinking violet. No, they're, they're strong characters with strong right. points of view. Of course, the, the Talisa Soto character is somewhat more victimized, you right. know, in the sense she's in this, trapped in this um, toxic relationship with with Sanchez, but uh, also has some, some. she kind of carries herself as high status and she's kind of playing them a little bit. But yeah, I think Carrie Lowell, I totally agree with you, is Pam Bouvier, terrific character. You know, she has agency. Right. She, you know, she is... Um, cool under pressure. She's competent at a number of things. She's a pilot. She's competent with a shotgun. Right. You know, and it, it kills he her that have she to has save to play her. subservient to him right. in this charade that Bond is running. And that's one of the best things about the movie is that repeatedly in this Isthmus sequence, Q shows up, we should mention. The great, the, the great, great Desmond Lewis. Oh. Yeah. Every, that guy is like the comfort pillow of cinema. 100%. Like the greatest, you know? And he's, pro, he's, it's also unusual for him to ha, to be out in the field right. and have a, be in it for this long. Right. So, so this is another reason why I think this film is, is quite beloved by real Bond fans because Q gets to do a lot more than he usually does. He's always a delight. When yeah, he I love, up, yeah, he's in great. A, a he's done a lot. Yeah. And I, I think that, that it's just great that he lasted for as long as he did. And also, Coming back to Die Hard, there's a little bit of 
Al Cowell that's a little bit inspired by a Q. Like the sidekick a little bit sure. who's sort of there to be a sounding and board and they've like contrarian relationship. With Sam Elliott and right. how, you know, how there is often like a peripheral support character right. uh, that offers help to the to, to our to And our is hero. a little buffoonish or silly in a mm. way that the main character Has cannot be. Has a bit of comic, comic relief to them, yep. a bit of warmth to them. Yeah, right. that just sort of takes the sting out of some of the more r- rough And we stuff. never really learn anything personal about Q, which is fine. That's not what he's there for, but what's interesting is that Al, the evolution of that character is into Al Cowell kind of being the guy with the tragic past who like, sure. you know, one of the things that you can point to with Die Hard is that every character in that film is very fully realized. There's nobody in Die Hard yes. that, that there are characters in Die Hard that serve plot functions. You know, Marco, my, my boy Marco, or uh, <laughs> my table, or like um, the dick news reporter, Thornburg, right? right. right? But even Thornburg gets his moment where he gets slapped in the face and you sort of feel bad for him because it's so pathetic. You know, Q never functions. In, you fall in love with him because he's repeatedly in the movies and mm. he's really fun. But what's great about Die Hard is the, as the you know, perennial action movie is all the characters that we're supposed to care about, we really, really care about because we know something about mm-hmm. them. It's just interesting. Like, you can sort of see the evolution to an Al Cowell from Q, you know, and... and no action movie is not made in the shadow of James Bond, which is an interesting way to think about this. That this film influenced Die Hard, or this Die Hard influenced this film. But like, it's a cycle. Mac- yeah, it is. And yeah. McLean, James Bond, wisecracking, tough guy, is a type that James Bond kind of helped to create. I mean, this is a very McLean like version of Bond in the sense of you know he's vulnerable. He's you know he if he if he gets shot he bleeds. You know, he doesn't he you know it's it's more of an the everyman. Even right. on the poster, by the way, there was a bit of a controversy because there was a quote that I found as well in the James Bond like authorized guide that was specifically said they felt it alienated fans because the poster didn't have him in a tuxedo. He was dressed all in black. And it seemed like a conscious attempt to imitate Die Hard's um, appeal, you know. To these to people got to relax a little bit, you know. Yeah, it's a li- yeah. I mean, you're being a little precious. It's like when people complain but, about Bond drinking a Heineken. But that's what. But but that's what I mean about how important it is and how much ownership people. Are. You know, yeah, we talk about this right. in superhero culture where people that's not my Superman or that's not my. But because people have this sense of personal ownership over right. the character, and it is written large in, in in certainly in British culture, but I think it for everyone, as you said, everyone a lot of people have a close relationship with what they think Bond should be. Yep. Hence the controversies around the casting every time and people were like, Oh blonde Bond, how dare you when right. Daniel Craig was cast and so forth. So yeah, people get pretty intense about it. And yet I think it's it's interesting because there's the tension in the fact that it has to evolve. Yes, you know, exactly. It's totally you important to stay for relevant. To, you know, yeah. And the way to do that is to evolve and move with the times. Let's Let's get through our plot synopsis yes. so we can jump into our anatomy of an action movie. Some of these things we've already touched on, but that's fine. Bond goes to Isthmus. He sort of infiltrates Davi's gang. He sort of, he ends up being invited to this lair where Davi is making all of his drugs, but also it's in a, in a little bit of satire. It's a meditation center run by with Wayne Newton playing a, a slimy character as sort of the figurehead of this like weird... This was a part center. of the film that I did struggle a little bit to understand the cultural, yeah. like, w- is it, this is supposed to be a fictitious Central American country. Yeah. This, this sort of cult, I, unless I miss, unless and my, it, But then it's sort of like about wellness, like there's like a weird wellness thing going on. It is, I think there's a scene or two missing, to be totally honest, with that, like we don't have that explained. But I admire this film's fleet-footedness because I was not, I was, a, I thought of that a little bit, but it does not prevent you from super enjoying 
the film no, we're no, getting it's into. Just, it. It's just it's a strange choice, but it, it's an interesting idea that they're using this this cult or televangelism to uh, as part of their drug to hide the drug dealing, and it's sort of setting the prices, and they can communicate internationally and all the rest of it. So basically, it's a it's a front for Sanchez's drug operation, right? And Bond is on a tour with the uh, with the. Uh, sort of Asian drug dealers who Davi is going to start to sell to and manufacture at scale. And one of Davi's henchmen, who we've seen throughout the film, a little recognizes actor by the name Bond. Of Benicio del Toro. Benicio del Toro, who is so good in this movie. Incredible. In, like, there's a different, I mean, uh, you know, he's come to be one of Jumps the most celebrated actors. It's actually, I'm a little disappointed that he's in a Bond movie at 27 when, like, I would watch Benicio del Toro be a Bond villain like 20 years later. Now, like, oh, yeah. yeah, right now. If he did it now, I would be like, yes, give this to me. But like a great sort of heavy uh, debut for one of the most, or not debut, but like one of, like, you know, seven years later, five years later, he's in The Usual Suspects and totally like runs the runs the entire movie, you know? Yeah. But absolutely incredible as like it's a also, lunatic just, in this. Just as a side note, just about him and we'll talk, we'll, I don't know, we'll get through the synopsis, but... He is notable because he is a competent henchman, which is often not the case yes. in Bond. That's a really good point. He's good at his job. Yeah. He's smart. He spots when he's and when he does spot Bond, there's no messing about. You know? Right. So. I do appreciate that the henchmen in this movie uh do repeat. You see them again and again and again. It's mm -hmm. not like new guys every single time, which I think is it's just nice. I like it when they're like the ensemble of henchmen stays the same throughout. I think mm -hmm. that's really, really good. You like consistency. I like consistent goons. in my henchmen. So what are we missing? Bond destroys Sanchez's drug ring, chases him down a mountain in a truck, catches... How does Sanchez die in this movie? Well, it's with Felix Leiter's lighter. He lights him on fire! Felix Leiter gives, gives Bond a wedding gift. Really cool. I mean, that, that, again, talk about buttoning something. Like, <laughs> it as a, works, as a though. Device. It's brilliant. It is really it's good. Because it's, it's a, like the watch in Die Hard. Yeah, exa exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well said. So he gets, he has the lighter that Felix and his wife, who's now dead, gives him, and he lights Davi on fire because he's covered in gasoline? Yes. Yeah. What a Joel Silver way to go out. 100%. Amazing. This is very violent for Bond. Yeah, it is really violent. You know? Nobody gets lit up. There's a lot of weird violence in this movie in terms of, like, just things you don't expect. Someone gets eaten by maggots. Yep. It's just bon wild. <laughs> and uh, Bond, uh, Bond then uh, is at a party. Mm -hmm. He's on the phone with Felix Leiter. Remember this? Right. Oh, at the end. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So Leiter's like, oh, no biggie. My so we escape. Right. Yeah. It's weird that he's still alive and he's so like, I, he should be a destroyed man and yet he's not, which is a weird dis inconsistency yeah. Yeah. in the film's dark tone. Yeah, exactly. Oh, he's yeah. like, I don't have a leg anymore. My wife's dead. But like, it's chill that oh, you well. lit this guy <laughs> on fire. Um, and uh, Bond um, sort of gets pulled aside by Lupe Lamora, mm -hmm. Sanchez's girl. Uh, and she kisses him, and Pam Bouvier sees this and is upset about it. And she goes downstairs, and Bond jumps off the balcony into a pool, kisses her, and they... Oh, no, she gets into the pool with him. Yeah. He pulls her into the pool, and they kiss. And then there's a weird shot of a fish sculpture that there's I a weird, and it And it's, it's a static shot. It's a photograph. I, I don't know what yeah. is happening, <laughs> but I love the movie so much that I'll forgive. I, it's almost these weird eccentricities that are a part of what makes them makes it fun. But, I 100% um, agree. Yeah, basically, that's the, that's, that's the movie. That's the story in broad strokes. Broad strokes. But we got, we got in there. We got yeah. in there. And we, we covered a little bit of our anatomy of an action movie section. But let's, let's tick our way through it. So, yes. You have 
one, two, three, four, five, six rules. Rules? Well, Principles? Guidelines? Whatever we want to call yeah. them that define the uh, define an action movie. Tenets? Tenets. Um, yeah, Ooh, tenets. Yeah, you like that we live in a yeah, twilight yeah. world, Indeed. my friends. Indeed. Um, <laughs> Our producer <laughs> just shook his head that I made a... <laughs> I said we live insane. in a twilight world. <laughs> Tenet um, 2, when? Yes. Tenet 2, when? Well, I, I, it's funny, again, I was thinking about this today. It, you know, I think about Tenet every Nolan day, Would Nolan do too. a Bond movie? Oh, he, he, t- he doesn't need to. He already made you know? two. He made Inception and Tenet, which are kind of James Bond movies, I, I mean, think. can he do one, please? I would, oh my God. I'm sorry, I just had to escape to my own personal yeah, island yeah, yeah. for a personal. For also, real quick, the sequel to Tenet, you know what it's called? Tenet. Tenet backwards. But it's backwards. It's yeah. just the same thing, right? I'm 100% on board. Uh, Phil, you're the expert. Tell us about the anatomy of an action movie. Well, okay, so you know we've talked about this before. Basically, um, s- uh, six kind of principles that I think if you want to make a truly great action movie or an action movie that stands the test of time, these are these are some of the things that are critically important to get right. Um, so the first of which is the the premise. Okay, so in this movie, the the broad stroke, the simple version is Bond goes rogue to seek revenge. Um, yet within that. It's normally um, a mission. This time, it's a personal one. Correct. Which, is, yeah, which is definitely an aberration. Um, but within that plot, that I mean, we 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 skimmed over it, but there it gets super complex. There's a whole subplot with Hong Kong narcotics agents that are trying to bust Sanchez. There's the there's the cult thing and the all the rest of that. There's the you know that that within the sim. It's not a simple. Um, a There's to a B lot of, plot. Yeah, there, there, there are a lot of complications mm-hmm. within it, but basically, the premise Bond goes rogue to seek personal revenge is a good premise. Uh, you know, that is a strong yes. I want to see that movie. We're and seeing it, a character with this incredible skill set that's for once driven by a personal vendetta, but driven that is emotionally driven, as opposed to we have to get the Russian submarines uh, tracking device or whatever it might be, some specific espionage. And plot. there are shades of of Die Hard in that, in that McLean's quote-unquote mission in that movie is to save his wife mm-hmm. and save himself, which is, again, really important to Die Hard is it's as much about survival as anything else. And Lethal Weapon, which, you know, is kind of about two partners overcoming their odds and, and one of their suicidal tendencies to, like, become whole people again, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, the personal nature of the violence and the action in these movies is really specific to the era and the period. And it kind of reverberates in Craig, because there's a lot of revenge and anger in Craig. Yes. That does yeah. not exist. In Whereas the you feel like Roger, Roger Moore, I, I don't want to speak too much to Connery, you're more the expert there, there's somewhat of an emotional detachment to it. It's I really agree. just fun. It's just fun. It's just shits and giggles for, for Roger Moore most of the time. Yeah. And, and that's part of what we love about those movies. But this, it, yeah, this this definitely has personal stakes. But what I wanted to ask you about was the, the, the producer and co-writer writer Michael Wilson even acknowledged this specifically on on the record is he felt that the the sabotage plot in terms of um, uh, what uh, Bond is trying to do to disrupt Sanchez's operation was directly influenced by Yojimbo. And, wow! And so I wondered if you had any thoughts on that because I know you've you know you know your Kurosawa inside out. Um, how do you and we even talked about that with Roadhouse, not many people would have uh, equated uh, Kurosawa and Roadhouse, but that's what we do here. Anytime you want to talk about Kurosawa, I'm on board. Um, You know, I think that there's something prototypical in Yojimbo that I think is really important, which is that the impersonal becomes personal in those movies, which is really strong, in the sense that at the beginning of the film, he's sort of seeking to play, to make money and play two sides against each other. But 
at a certain point in the film, you know, it's these two gangs in this town controlling the town, you know, and he's sort of like, how, how can I play them against each other and, and make money and do well? But at a certain point, he saves a young boy and his family, and he doesn't have to do that. And I think you see, you know, Mufune's Yojimbo character in those films is like a scoundrel, but a scoundrel with a heart of gold. Mm-hmm. And I, you see that. I mean, there's no question, for example, that that's who Han Solo is. Mm-hmm. I think McLean is, you know, a character who, like, grows his heart back by the end of Die Hard and realizes his own folly and his own mistake. And I don't quite... I think what's interesting about Dalton is that he is one of the first figures in Bond to have none of the sort of smiling, like, sociopathic tendencies that, like, Sean Connery, like, throws a guy into a bathtub and then throws, like, a hairdryer in there and the guy is shocked and he goes, shocking, absolutely shocking. You know, Mm. like, I think that Dalton is an interesting figure because he's in it for revenge and it's personal, but he also like the hits register and the kills register. And it isn't, it doesn't feel quite as like detached as it does with Roger Moore or with. Well, also I think is what, so, and this, this leads naturally into the second one of our, our, our tenets, which is the hero. Um, we've already talked about it a lot, but, um, yeah, Dalton's divisive, uh, take on this, right. on On the role, um, was closer to the books, more rugged physically. We talked about that. It's interesting what you're saying, but I suppose there is more of a sense of he's enjoying killing the people in this instance because they're all connected to the death of his friend versus as opposed to just doing his job. Again, it's very impersonal in the Connery right. and the and the and the more. And like I think as our you know culturally as our relationship to like espionage and ops and like post 80s Afghanistan and all the things that we have to think about, like the secret agent or the sort of like toppling kind of empires kind of thing, like espionage and murder and, and government, it's more, it gets more complicated as we get later into history. And, and it should, it's fair to say that like every action movie made after 1975 is really can't ignore Vietnam. And, you know, the greatest action movie of all time, in my opinion, Lethal Weapon which is ultimately about guys recovering. Fine, fine, <laughs> whatever. Recovering from Vietnam, like you, the the personal stakes of violence are very, very different in movies that get made after that period of time. Like mm. the, at least in the states, I think the right. culture is very, yeah. very different than where it was before. And and I think that there's like the shadow of that exists in all these. Yeah, movies. there are still flippant. You know, there's still flippant uh, moments, like we said, when he throws the guy into the you know the, the maggots. And, right. But some of the deaths here are particularly gruesome, and we we'll, we'll talk. We'll, you know, we'll we'll get into that. But what I wanted to ask you was just where do you stand on Dalton's take on the role? Oh, I think he's great. I think he's, uh, you know, I think that that he's a, there's a, ten- a natural tension in that he's playing a modern Bond, but there's still the, you know, a farewell to arms line, and there's the kind of classic. And I think he nails it. And I think that you have to find that middle ground because I love Daniel Craig. I think he's the best, in some ways, the best actor who's ever played James Bond by like a mile. But the serious nature of those movies and the sort of attempt to build an arc in those films made it a little, a little, um, let's say, like airless. Like at times, I don't think there was as much humor as there could have been and there is much fun. And I think that, Dalton is a little more successful at nailing both the dark side of it and the humor. And that's not to say that Daniel Craig can't do that, but that the movie 
it sort of exists at a tension point between being light and serious better than some of the later entries do too. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, you know, every Bond has to fit the era they're in. And I think Dalton, it's disappointing he only did two. I think he could have had a longer run. And he run. was supposed to do a third, but basically just, just to cover that real quick, um, there was um, a, le a long legal dispute that, that, yeah. that nixed the third movie, but they actually had art. Uh, and posters at Cannes. It was called Property of a Lady, which was a Fleming uh, Oh, that's title. a really interesting title for a very James strange, Bond movie. Very strange, yeah. very unusual. But it wasn't like, I think the common perception and misconception is like, oh, Dalton did too, and like that was it, and it was scrapped because they, they, didn't, they didn't work. Yeah, Actually, he, he feels like an hits. experiment that went wrong um, in a... Not really, but that's what that's the way it's phrased. Or, but it's or, not, it's not the case. He had a three picture deal, which was which was standard. It's just that it took so long because of this legal problem mm -hmm. to to do the third one, which they were both going to do. But then it sort of seemed like Dalton was felt like he was kind of too old. The moment had passed, and because it had been such a long time yeah. between movies, Bro Broccoli wanted consistency. He didn't want to just Dalton have do one to cap off his run and then reboot it again. So that's when they pivoted to Brosnan, who of course had auditioned for and won the part in Bond for uh, Living Daylights and, and actually shot the, the gun barrel sequence before the Remington Steel contract. Um, oh, was, wow. was enforced and and he he ended up you know the show got picked up and he he ended up he ended up having to wait. Um, and I mean he made I think arguably a top five Bond movie. Goldeneye. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I'm I, excited I, to discuss that when we get. To I, it. I want us to wear tuxedos when we. Do I, that one. I love that. Oh my god, he's <laughs> so good. On he's this. so good in that movie. And after that, it falls off a little bit. But that one is a, a, a classic. Yeah, that like one's a, a, that and one's a really a great important. One. Cultural movie. I Definitely. mean, like a like the a video monster. game. Yeah, the, the Tina Turner song. Right. You know. Yeah. Sean Bean. Um, Sean, Sean Bean. Bean. Again, pour some out. Pour one out. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So good. Speaking of villains. Speaking of villains. Um. So. All right. Let, this is something we. A, a truly great action film needs a great villain. How do we rank Robert Davi as Fran Sanchez in that tradition? I think he's a great villain. Action. Movies. I think we've covered a lot of this, but I think that like he has to be suave which he is he has to be resourceful which he is one thing that i like about him one of the best things that i think defines him as a character is that he has that clawing annoying actor guy not the not the actor is annoying i should say but the the sort of like cheap suit wall street guy who's kind of managing his money yeah truman lodge truman lodge yeah, what a sort of what a yuppie name whiz kid. yeah yeah, yeah. yuppie whiz kid who, uh, by the way, definitely uh, does not exist without Wall Street coming out you sure. know, five years before this movie. But at one point, he's like, we have a deal with these guys. And Davi's like, I don't care about the deal. We have trucks yeah. full of coke and money. Like, yeah. he, he knows, he's like, the chips are down. Like, what do, I, what, are, what do I immediately have in front of me? Which feels like he kind of abandons the master plan in favor of the money and the drugs that he already has. Which doesn't feel like a Bond villain. He's pragmatic yep. in that moment. It's great. Yeah, yeah. It's very. He's a. He is an unusually realistic Bond and villain. and cunning. Yeah, because you you know often we see them and even in the recent iterations, which as you said are more serious, they are like they're grotesque in some way. Yep. They're larger than life. Um, they're physically bizarre. Yeah. Um, we see that in like Die Another Jaws. Day, um, Jaws. Right. Um, the, uh, Rami Malek has some of that in, the, in, in No Time to Die and right. Javier Bardem has it uh, in that one scene. God, Javier Bardem is so um, good. They it's often have deformities just or just right. sort of big, larger than life kind of characteristics. This is, this is a straight up grounded drug trafficker. Yep. The other thing I think that's interesting about, about this one, he has dimensionality, which we talked about. He values loyalty, which right. ultimately is his Achilles heel. So he has like positive qualities as well as a, a numerous right. um, 
numerous uh, awful qualities. Um, yeah. It's a great, <laughs> no, it's a great, like, yeah, I think, I think that this is a real interesting iteration. And again, like, the grounded quality of that character goes a long way. I think he truly is a great Bond villain. The, the other thing that I think is great about, about Sanchez is he has an iguana. And I wanted to pitch you guys my iguana podcast, right? Okay. We start, we look at the history of iguana iguanas. Iguana cast. We start with um, Pugsley in you the Terminator. tell you what, I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you on that as <laughs> no, an no, idea. No, no, hear me out. Right? <laughs> jump, no, jump in the build. Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> jump, jump, great. So good. Um, your third characteristic here is a ticking clock. This movie doesn't really have no, one. No, not, not, every, not everyone does. We've talked about some of them are, are kicking, like in Die Hard. It there is in the no timer, act, though. There's nothing counting down really, in the movie, you know? No. One of the things that I love about Goldeneye, this is a digression, is that that movie sort of opens where a lot of Bond, ends, Bond movies end, where like you infiltrate the villain's lair or something mm. like that, and there is a ticking clock in the opening of Bond, mm -hmm. leading to Literally the explosion yeah, of the, yeah. uh, the factory. But this movie doesn't have it. But I do think that if there is a ticking block, ticking clock there there it could have been that bond you know bond's need for revenge you know there is ticking clock elements in the opening sequence davi is in american airspace i yeah. should say sanchez in american airspace yes. and they have to catch him before yeah. he gets into uh, international airspace so there are there are moments but the movie doesn't really rely on that and i would argue that the best sequences of bond films are the long middles where again we're at the casino we're on the floor. It's a game of wits. It's cat not and a mouse, yeah. yeah. It's a cat and mouse. It's sort of playing poker and like somebody's cheating. Like Bond is like I you know to use a phrase that the kids love. Those parts of Bond, they're a vibe. That's the vibe that you want from your sure, Bond movie. Sure. You want kind of the like cunning. It you you need the game and mouse. Thing. What's also interesting about that cat is and mouse. It, it solves a conundrum that happens in a lot of action movies, and it happens in and they had to solve it in Die Hard and Die Hard Two, which is your hero and villain are almost never in the same scene, and because of the, that structure good, of yeah. Bond, where it's he infiltrates the organization, they often play they play. They might play against each other at the casino or dance around each other a little bit um, in the villains on the villain's home turf. It solves a, a problem that exists a lot where you just have the, the, the two guys are not in the same physical same physical space, which is less interesting. And that's why in Die Hard, of course, they had to come up with the scene of, um, you know, a, a, Clay. Indeed. Bill Clay. The, 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 classic, <laughs> the classic scene. Also in Die Hard 2, they decided to put in the scene at the beginning where William Sadler's character, Colonel Stewart and and McLean bump into each other at the airport because they realize they're just never in the same scene until right at the end. Yeah. So so it solves that problem. But I wanted to talk to you about that opening sequence, which which leads into our... our, our the fifth, our the fifth, fifth tenant. Category, fifth ten tenant. Uh, or we live in a twilight world. Um <laughs> Action. Action. Uh, how do we, of course, an action movie needs great action. It sounds obvious, but, you know, we need the stunts, um, you know, what? the spectacular nature. Let me of... ask you this. What Bond movie has the best action sequences, in your opinion? And I know it's hard to evaluate because we're looking at a history of, of like, the, the way movies are made, right? Like, so, like, what's a top Bond sequence for you? Um, gosh, that is a tough... Sorry, I put you on the spot. You're putting me on the spot. I, I definitely think Sky Skyfall is the one that springs to mind, and certainly in the modern era with the train stuff. The train, the the, the hearing sequence stuff is unbelievable. Um, but what I will say is this: you know, this action sequence that starts this movie, I would put against any opening sequence of any Bond movie or any action movie period because it has 
It, mm. I love that it's this cold open, visually daz dazzling, amazing mm. locations. I also, I'm a sucker for a helicopter. Yeah, yeah just, you said that for, like, via text. I just text. can't get enough of them. <laughs> I am <laughs> on, that way for an Uzi. <laughs> yeah. When someone pulls out an Uzi, at the end of this movie, someone pulls out an Uzi. And by the way, Uzis are not a James Bond uh, no. thing. No. Uh, a James Bond is Walther PPK's. Oh, another thing I want to say. This is very specific. I'm sorry. But in that opening sequence. Yes. Lighter hands James Bond a gun. Mm. Do you know what kind of gun it is? Is it a Beretta 9mm? It's a Beretta 9mm, yeah. which I'm not a gun guy. But Me neither. That is the gun that Martin Riggs uses in Lethal Weapon. Right, right. And I well, think all roads lead back to Lethal I, Weapon it's, for you. But, it's but, like... but I think that it's significant <laughs> that he doesn't hand him a Walther PPK. Yeah. No, the it's first true, yeah. weapon that James Bond sees well, is the movie American... made famous by a Joel Silver right. uh, production. It, you're right. It is the iconography of the action. It's very iconography. It's also yeah. McLean's gun. Right, it is you know. McLean's gun, and a gun that like cops shouldn't have been carrying. They were carrying semi-automatic and a handgun. The one thing very about funny. That, that sequence that is is a little bit like I'm. I do struggle a little bit to believe David Hedison has tactical training in the way that he's like handling the gun. And that stuff guy should like be that. a nightclub singer. It, it I don't buy it. Yeah, you know, work, but the Bush, Grandel Bush, of course, clutching that machine gun. You're like, yeah, you buy it. But the point is about Why that sequence is, yeah. To me, it's 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 almost proto Michael Bay, but it's more specifically um, Joel, this, Silver. Joel Silver. Yeah, it's the Joel Silver style. I think the action sequences in this movie are great. My actual favorite action sequence in the entire film, and by the way, I, I stand by my theory that all movies are action movies. But my favorite action scene in the whole thing is when, very sh the towards the end, when he's on the conveyor belt and his feet are gonna, he's about to get pulled down into that thing, and Benicio del Toro comes and cuts starts to cut off the. Uh, cut uh, what, what, his, his sleeve or whatever right. it is. It's just a very personal, gnarly sequence of action. And like Terrifying. the movie plays very big and also it knows when to play very small. Mm. And that's a small moment. And I think that like it also speaks to the, the you know, then the, there's no, it is interesting that there isn't a sequence in this movie where Davi and Bond, you know, face off in hand-to-hand -hand combat, a la lethal weapon or, you know, whatever the case is. And actually in a way, as a Joel Silver kind of influence, the the sort of the final encounter between Bond and Benicio del Toro's character is closer to the McLean Carl sequence yes. in Die Hard in that it's very physical, it's very visceral, intense, it's very nasty. visceral. You they die, well Carl doesn't die, but the their their death is violent. But again, to your point about the, the you know the silver thing and the lethal weapon of it all, and we talked about how th there was also this style moving in of you have a great villain, but you have an amazing henchman who is right. often the the, the most imposing physical, physical adversary. Exactly. Which Dario del Toro is here. Yeah. Carl is in Die Hard. Gary and Busey, Mr. Joshua, Joshua is, is, in, is in, in Lethal Weapon. Put some, so put some respect on Mr. Joshua's name. Of course, Mr. Joshua. But what's yeah. so good is that then the Davi Bond encounter is similar to the Hans McLean encounter, where instead of it being personal, a fight, it's yeah, personal. Yeah, yeah. And... McLean throws him off the ledge or lets him fall, you know, disconnects the watch and he falls. And in this, he lights him on fire using the lighter that Felix, Felix lighter. Felix lighter's lighter. Felix lighter's lighter. Yeah, it's a personal artifact. So it has that extra bit of spice on it when yeah. it's, it's a final F you. It's you great. Know. Um, so how do you feel about that tanker chase? It's okay. I, I, I'm candidly, I think the movie's about 10 minutes too long. And I don't know that the problem is in the tanker chase. I think it might be in the 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 investigation part of the movie. But it's good. I mean, look, 
I love a truck chasing another truck when there are flamm- there's flammable things at stake. Just you needed know? a helicopter again. Oh my god! More Any helicopters, more helicopters? Please. You must love the mission, the first Mission Impossible sure. movie. Then, yeah, I'm very excited. There's a uh, anyway. There's footage of a helicopter going into a tunnel in the new Mission Impossible trailer, and I'm I'm feeling that. I'm feeling that very strongly. Just and yeah, I'm there. Should we give some awards? All right. So we've got the John McClane Yippie Kaye Award for Best Quip. Any nominees that you want to throw? Oh, in the it's mix? 100%. It's a farewell to arms. The oh, movie, yeah. it's I mean, that. That's the winner. Made Sorry. A great. Case Thank for you. That. This one does does struggle. Uh, a couple of others I wrote down. Pretty weak. I'll do anything for a woman with a knife. What about the money? Launder it after it's covered in that's blood. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. He, uh, Sanchez got a couple of zingers, but my favorite one is. So there's this. We talked about Truman Lodge, the yuppie. When he, when Sanchez realizes that he's, um, he, he's kind of done with him and he's insulting him after they lose another tanker, um, he's Truman Lodge is complaining like, "Oh, that's another fifty million or whatever, five hundred yeah. million book that we just lost. Great job, Sanchez." And then Sanchez says, "Maybe it's time to start cutting overhead." <laughs> that is a really good one. That is re- that's... now my only that might point win. about that is a few seconds later or a few moments later, Sanchez is going after Bond with a machete. So he has a machete. Why don't you cut off Truman Lodge's head? You're going as violent as anything yeah, anyway. I think that's an say, R rating. I think that's maybe, an R rating. And then rating. say, maybe it's time to start cutting overhead. But you've already had a guy be mauled by a shark. We've had Dario be fed to a shredder. We need to get Robert Davi and, and that guy together to reshoot this part of the movie. Because yes. that's, no. And for the special um, edition, we'll like overhead. George Lucas it. And <laughs> but there's something really pithy about that. That feels like, you know that scene in Indiana Jones where uh, the guy shows up with the sword and does all the moves and Harrison right. Ford just shoots yeah, him? Yeah, yeah. That That is in the tradition of I that. I do like Which ha- is one of the great uh, ad-libs in yeah. movie history because yeah, yeah. uh, Harrison Ford had I like the problems. realism of it. And yeah. it's just, yeah. And so, it's, a mach- it's, a, it's a newsy, right? Is it a newsy? Oh, I, I may not be, I think, is it a Tech 9? Is it know. a Tech? Oh, yeah. No, a, it has to be, yeah, the Tech 9, the yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, that's for sure. That's good. I could be wrong. I think it's it's either a time to start cutting some overhead, but I really like. You've convinced me. The Bondian. The, it's a farewell the to The erudite arms. nature of yeah, that. Yeah, it's the very good. Um, okay, the Hans Gruber Master Thief Award for stealing the movie. Who's your pick? Well, the nominees I've got are Davi, Carrie Lowell, Talisa Soto, Benicio Del Toro, but I think my personal winner would be Desmond Llewellyn as Q. I would give that to you if we were talking about The World is Not Enough, a fairly inconsequential Bond movie that features the final performance of Q, mm. and he sinks to the floor, and it's absurd, but also amazing. And so I, I'm sorry, I have to go with Carrie Lowell, mm-hmm. who we have not we haven't given, given enough, enough love, to, love really. to. She's incredible in this movie. She fits every sort of classic aspect of a James Bond character, except she's totally modern and kick-ass and cool, and I think is very, very funny and very, very smart. And uh, I would, I would like, yeah, she's a top five Bond girl for me. Yeah. So I think she steals the movie. Fair enough. All right, Dick Thornbird. Dick that Thorn- said, sorry, I yes. do understand your choice for Q because he gets a lot of screen time in this movie. Just an unusual, yeah. He and he's got some of the best moments. His his eye roll I think, when he realizes that Bond's in another love triangle. It's right. Just great. Oh, that's very good. He I also throw in away the brush. Every um, Everett McGill uh, as Killifer is very very good in this movie. I think that he would be. He's not. He wouldn't win, but he'd be on my. Well, shortlist. I have him in nominees for oh, Dick Thornburg oh. Award for Dick of the Movie, uh, the corrupt and traitorous DEA agent Ed Killifer. Milton Crest and Joe Butcher, the uh, the Wayne Newton character, Professor Joe Butcher, excuse me, um, the the uh, the televangelist. Those oh. are my three noms. I mean, for Wayne Newton. Dick of the movie. Wayne Newton could almost steal the movie because you're like, is that Wayne Newton? 
There's a couple interesting. So bizarre. I'm sorry to jump backwards, but you know who else is great in this movie? Frank McRae as Sharky, mm-hmm. who's just like this wonderful, warm presence throughout the movie and kind of disappears, which Doesn't is a bummer. Get, but and he's killed off screen. Which dick is, of the yeah. movie. Uh, oh, hi, it's got to be Truman Lodge. I f- oh wow, I hate okay. that. I hate that guy. No, no okay. disrespect to that actor, but like. I just want to punch that yuppie scum in the face the whole time. He's rough. Yeah. Okay. Oh, man. But Benicio Del Toro also deserves a little uh, honor for being a pretty big dick in this movie, too. Okay, fair. You? Fair. Your thoughts? Um, I, just not because I think he's like too much. <laughs> he's like a low-key dick, but I just love Milton Crest. Like, I love the the... the how he like comes in yeah. to Talisa Soto. He's like he's like creepy, but he doesn't totally he's like inappropriate. And she says, You're drunk, and he's he drunk. doesn't completely like he, he does he's just annoyed at her because she's costing him money. Right. And he's just kind of low-key, creepy and and weird. But I just I actually what's interesting is I actually feel sorry for him when he gets decompressed. I also feel sorry for Dario Del Toro's character when he gets shredded because he screams out Sanchez. And they have a kind of like cousin uncle type brotherly yeah. Lo- yeah like and yeah they, they, uncle is good sh- basically the villains are humanized in this movie which makes them a bit more interesting i was know. gonna say this is a nice transition to best death yes because i think the best death in the movie has got to be the way milton crest goes out where his i have head that in my noms it's pretty <laughs> that's Woo! disturbing it's disturbing i thought it was do you dis- feel sorry for him in that moment I feel sorry for him because I like that actor very yeah, much. The actor brings so much. He's charming, to it. and and that could have been a bullshit part, and he is so yeah, good in it. I love him in it. The yeah. cast in this movie is pretty ridiculous. It's, it's strong. I think that's a good death. I think Fran, Fran Sanchez's death of being lit on fire by Felix Leiter's lighter uh, is very very good. Yeah, I had that, and Dario's demise in the shredder, and also Ed Killifer's death at the hands of the sh- at the uh, or the mouth of the shark. A lot of good deaths in so this movie. Four, I have four pretty good deaths. Yeah. What would you? Which one were you going for? Are you going for Crest? I think I'm going for Crest because yeah. I that made an like when I thought it's about mem- this movie, it's the most memorable. And before I watched the movie, I thought of a couple things. I hadn't seen it. I thought of Carrie Lowell. <laughs> I thought of greatest greatest Bond great Bond girl. I thought five, 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 five. <laughs> um, But oh, the other thing, I, I <laughs> sorry. Whew. Um, is it hot in here? Yeah. Um, and I thought of this is the movie where that guy's head explodes because yeah. they pressurize yeah, yeah. him, it's, and then they rem- they pull the pressure. It's kind of iconic, and they, yeah. it's built up. It's like a very and also that's the launder it line, which is a great Bond right. villain. But again, Davi is so cold blooded. He he delivers it so cold bloodedly. It's a great. It's yeah. I would go with that. Agree. All right. So wrapping up, I do have and one of these questions is about Carrie Lowell for our double jeopardy quiz slash trivia. I have three three questions. Sorry, I was <laughs> the sound of your heart. <laughs> Beating. Okay. Yes. So Carrie Lowell, who plays Pam Bouvier, has been married three times in real life. Two of her husbands were Hollywood actors. One was and is a major movie star. Can you guess the name of her famous third husband, or do you already know? I do have a good clue for it. The funny thing is that I actually saw this when I was, I went on her Wikipedia on Saturday morning (laughs) when I was watching this. Well, I do need a clue though, because I can't remember. All right, so here's the clue. This American movie star once played an Irish terrorist opposite Bruce Willis in the Hollywood remake of a classic political thriller in a movie that we are planning to cover on this podcast. That was the worst clue I've ever heard in my life. There were like 14 parts to that clue. (laughs) What are you doing? All right. It's an American actor that played an Irish terrorist in a Bruce Willis action movie from the from the, the late 90s 
Is it the film is the jackal? Uh, Richard Gere? Yes. She's married to Richard Gere? She was married to oh. Richard Gere for a long time. Yeah, she was married to him between 2002 and 2013. She was also married to actor Griffin Dunn between 1989 and 1995. Oh, I love Griffin Dunn. After Hours. Yep. Great movie. All right, question two. Frank, I got that one. Well done. Ding, yeah, ding, that ding. counts. I love you, Carrie. <laughs> Frank McRae, who plays Bond and Lighter's pal Sharky, plays, this is an easier one, plays the angry police captain Hayden in which iconic Last Joel Action Silver Hero. produced buddy movie from 1982. Oh, and it's like, damn it. Oh, because he's in Last Action Hero too. He plays uh, he plays the police chief of police in that movie, I think, as I recall, doesn't he? I know he's in National Lampoon, kind of spoofing oh, that's the character. What it is. National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon, spoofing the character. Frank McRae um, plays an angry police to, in 1982's... 1982's iconic Joel Silver produced buddy movie. What is it? 48 hours. Oh, get I, I, I'm quitting the podcast. Fun fact about Frank McRae, played in the NFL as a defensive yes. tackle. And yeah. featured in six games for the Chicago Bears Bring in the 1967 season. Bring more great NFL players into action Bring movies. Bring back Bosworth. <laughs> Bring back Bosworth. Jim Brown and Dirty Dozen? Get out of here. Yep. Amazing. Do you like the Dirty Dozen? Yes, love it. John Cassavetes, best thing it. about that movie. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I don't know if that, but that movie absolutely rocks. Yeah, it's awesome. Rocks ass. Savalas. Ugh. All right, here's my last Savalis, one. Savalas, amazing in that film. All right, I think you'll like this one, and this is okay. going to lead to our last sort of fun, fun thing, and then we'll wrap up. All right, so License to Kill was the Italian title for which iconic Bond movie starring Sean Connery? Is it from Russia with Love? Okay, is it... Is it Dr. No? Yes. Yeah, yeah yep. that makes sense. Because they, they go out of their way to explain that he has a license to kill. Because that's like in the tagline for that movie or something like that. So this raises just the last thing I thought would be fun. Okay, so so the the original title of this movie was License Revoked. But as you may know, that they that they rejected that, even though they'd done some of the marketing. because License Revoked is not a good title. Well, say because Americans associate that with the DMV, apparently. Right, yeah. So, yeah. so they were like, okay, well, that isn't going to work. Ugh, so in Japan, it DMV. was called The Cancelled License. In Italy, it was Private Revenge, Vendetta Privetta. Mm -hmm. In Norway, it was With a Right to Kill. So what I thought would just be to finish the episode is... Can we come up with our own bad James Bond movie title? Oh, heck yeah. Um, it doesn't have to be licensed. It can just be whatever. Anything okay. we want. Basically, it's like uh, there's about four words. Gold. You got to die. Die. Day. Has to be in <laughs> die. <laughs> this A is gold amazing. day to I, die and kill. I gold die time. Oh man, we've got to workshop this. But a bit. then, but see, here's the problem: your your theory falls apart a little bit because there are very great James Bond titles that are single words. I don't think it's a great movie. Yeah, Spectre. but we're trying to come up with a bad one. We're trying to be, that's, that's <laughs> it was like mangled in translation. Well, yeah, it's like uh, you only die twice or something. I don't know. That's that's only live once. That's that's not not that's bad. Not great. It's okay. I don't know. Let's can we brainstorm on a this? A golden day to die a, young. That's really good. A golden day to die young. It makes no sense. Yeah, but none of these titles translate running the Exactly. <laughs> that was actually the title for No Time to Die in like Greek. Yeah. All right. I have a uh, pop quiz for you that okay. I, I think yes. you're going to get. Ooh. There are two actors in this movie Talisa Soto, who plays Lupe, mm -hmm. and Kari Hiroyuki Tagawa, yes. who plays Kang. Yes. What later action movie did they both star in? Ooh. I know that. I know that. Uh, Carrie was in Rising Sun, which is what I very know very him, good movie know him from. But um, I don't know. Could you give me a clue? I could. We talked about it earlier. 
earlier today? Mortal Kombat! Oh, okay, okay. She plays Katana oh, in yes. Mortal Kombat yes. and Mortal Kombat oh, yes. Annihilation. And he plays Shang Tsung in Mortal Kombat. Shame on me for not knowing my Mortal Kombat mythology it's fine. and actors. Good movie. The original is great. I don't know. It gets a little dicey after that one, but then the Mortal Kombat is a great Christopher Lambert, an actor that we haven't talked about. Where are oh. you on Highlander? Love. Yeah, of course you do. <laughs> Queen soundtrack? Come on. No, you let's can't go. you can't beat it. Um, let's wrap it up. Let's All right, wrap let's it up. Let's do it. Uh, where does license to kill fit in the action movie tradition for you and where, on the, and the Bond tradition? I think it's an important James Bond movie. I think it's a I think it's probably a less important action movie. But I will say that like it's been very illuminating to view it in this lens. So I thank you for bringing it to the table. How about you? I think that's well said. I th- yeah, I, I don't think it's like when we talk about the history of action movies of the 80s, this isn't necessarily one that springs to mind. But I think in the Bond canon and the Bond lineage, it's very significant because it marks sort of the the end of an era and a turning point and a, and probably the most extreme and violent Bond yeah. movie that was ever made. It's and more it's extreme than of any of the newer time. ones. Yes. It's, it's the most 80s James Bond, if you think of the Miami Vice of it, yeah. the drug dealing of it, the extreme violence of it, the lethal weapon, the Joel Silver, the Die Hard of it. Um, so I think it's significant as a Bond film, if, yeah. if maybe not so much we don't think about it. Bonds is kind of its own universe anyway. I agree. So I, I never it's outside I actually, of traditional action cinema. It's interesting that you bring that up because I inside, don't. I have but, strong opinions about what action movies are, and I would never characterize Bond movies as action movies. Yeah, I characterize they're, they're them as Bond, Bond movies. movies. They're, yeah, they're their own. They're sort of spy movies, but they're not espionage. Like right. if it's you want an genre, espionage movie, you, know. you watch you know like The Spy Who Came In from the Cold or Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy or you know any of those numbers. But Bond is is a universe of its own. And I think, interestingly, it's really fascinating to reflect on it uh, from a larger cultural perspective. I do not think it holds a candle or could ever come close to Die Hard. No. Um, Doesn't need know. to. No. I, but, think that's, I think that's fair. But I think it, you know, we can't deny. I, think, I hope we've made our case that Die Hard has had a significant influence on this movie and, and therefore on the the Bond franchise with Davy, Grandel Bush, the stylization, uh, Bearer Bonds, uh, the gritty everyman hero, the Cayman score, and uh, absolutely yada yada. Uh, well, I think I think we I think we covered it all. Yeah. What's uh, what's next? The Hunt for Red October. <laughs> the Hunt for Red October. John McTiernan's masterpiece. I think yeah, we can say uh, of yeah. of early '90s uh, submarine the cinema. First Jack Ryan cinematic. Uh, very very quickly translation. Um, I just want to say this: you're very excited by when you see a, a helicopter. In a, I am a sucker for a submarine movie. It's all I want. And this movie, I just actually rewatched it last week. I'm going to watch it again before we talk about it. It is a masterpiece. Can't wait. Can't wait. I wish I had seen Montana. Join us next time. Next time. Uh, I'm Liam Billingham. I'm Philip Gawthorn. And we'll be back next time with some new FBI guys, I guess. (laughs) Die Hard on a Blank is a podcast hosted and written by Philip Gawthorn. Liam Billingham co-hosts and produces the show. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DieHardOAB. Please rate, review, and subscribe and follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Suki Chu and the whole team at Sugar 23. See you next time on Die Hard on a Blank. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, Information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C O R I E N T.com. Corient.com. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca Cola, Pepsi, or 7 Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.